That was great. Thank you so much, Dan, worship team. If you would turn to Revelation chapter 21 this morning, we're going to continue working our way through the book of Revelation. This part of the chapter, verses 1 through 8, is actually a kind of uh, summary of the final two chapters. And uh, I want to look at it this morning and think about it uh, in a way that helps us to reflect on the book as a whole. Uh, It's interesting that uh, pictures are a wonderful thing, and they speak volumes. And that's why most of us love pictures, because we review things that have happened in the past, and it brings back all kinds of memories, and it speaks to us in fresh ways. Well, obviously, as we've already highlighted, this weekend has been Jonathan's graduation, and we had an open house yesterday, as Dan mentioned, and Jan worked really hard on putting together a slideshow for the open house, and a lot of people took the time to look at all the pictures of Jonathan's life uh, from birth on up, and the value of something like that is to help us to think about all the things that took place to bring Jonathan to this point in his life. And that's the way it is when we graduate or or just come to a certain point in our lives. As we look back on pictures, we can be reminded of what God has done and what we've been through and what it looked like for God to bring us to this place. And that's what I want to do this morning is to help us think about Uh, What we find in these chapters, the last two chapters of Revelation, are about heaven on earth. And yet the rest of the book that precedes these two chapters tells us what has to happen. It's sort of a slideshow of what has to happen to bring us to the point of heaven on earth. That it's not going to be maybe um, like we expected it to be in terms of how that was is going to take place and what God might do. One of the uh, shows that we like to watch, uh, especially Jan, is Call the Midwife. And we actually uh, employed a midwife uh, for our last three children, even though Jonathan wasn't born at home because of some uh, complications. But we had a midwife in um, delivering Molly and Annie. And so the show is about midwives in London, uh, I guess in the... 50s and 60s in that period of time. And the whole show is about uh, these women who are pregnant and the kinds of things they go through in the process of giving birth. One of the things that's fascinated me over the last few years in thinking about uh, the end times and what God says about the end times is that there's a reference in Matthew 24 where the Lord Jesus says, but all these things, and he's talking about the kinds of things that would take place in history and take place at the end of history. He says, toward the beginning of that discussion, all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Which means he's picturing the arrival of heaven on earth and the consummation of all that God promises us in Jesus as a birth process or a pregnancy leading to a birth. And that's what I think we find in the book of Revelation. We find God giving a kind of slideshow, pictures of the kinds of things that we can expect as we move toward the birth of heaven on earth. So what I'd like to do is read for us the first eight verses of Revelation 21 and then highlight some of the things in this passage 
but also give us a kind of overview of the things that have brought us to this point in the book. In verse 1 it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell with among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This is the word of God. Well, I'd like to just point out uh, very briefly in the time that we have left um, seven pictures in this slideshow, so to speak, of what we find in the book of Revelation as the Lord uh, brings us to the point of heaven on earth. And the very first thing to say when you think about the book of Revelation is not to miss the major point. The major point of the book is Jesus himself. We tend to get caught up in all the details of what's going to happen. And yet the very beginning of the book tells us it's, it's about the unveiling of Jesus. That's what it means in Revelation 1.1 when it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation means unveiling. It's like pulling a curtain back or a sheet off of something that's been hidden. And so it's the revelation of Jesus. And we see the revelation of Jesus in terms of who he really is. In the image, and again, we have pictures here that aren't to be taken literally, but they are to point toward real truth. And so in Revelation chapter 5, you've got Jesus pictured as a lion because they're asking the question in Revelation 5, who's going to open the seal and actually bring in heaven on earth? Who's going to be able to do this? And Jesus steps up, but he's described in Revelation 5, as the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. And a lion is a picture of a king who defends his people and judges his enemies. But it goes on from there and says that John heard them say, the lion of Judah is worthy to open the scroll. But then he sees something different. He sees between the throne and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. So you've got Jesus also pictured as a lamb, not just a lion, but a lamb. And the lamb is the image of a savior who rescues his people through his own death and through his own resurrection. So we have Jesus pictured as lion and lamb or king and savior. 
And obviously, we find out that this lion, who's also a lamb, is ruling over everything. He's the reigning lion and lamb over all that there is. And I've mentioned before a number of times, Jonathan Edwards reflects on Revelation 5, in verses 5 and 6, in that lion-lamb picture, and the combination of what does that mean that Jesus is both a lion and a lamb, and he highlights the fact that the lion excels in strength, that he is majestic, um, but the lamb excels in meekness and patience. And he goes on to say that that combination of strength and yet sacrifice is meant to move us to receive him, to see him as really what we need. He says, let what has been said be improved or applied to you to induce you to love the Lord Jesus Christ and choose him for your friend and portion. Because he goes on to say, there is everything in him to render him worthy of your love and choice and to win and engage it. Whatsoever there is or can be desirable in a friend is in Christ, and that to the highest degree that can be desired. So he's saying the very heart of the book of Revelation is about Jesus, who is glorious as both lion and lamb, and who is everything that our heart desires and everything that we need. And so the book is meant to unveil Uh, him to us so that we can see who he really is. Because the reality is we're more like the guy who wrote The Wizard of Oz. I've mentioned him before, Frank Baum, uh, who grew up in a Methodist church. But he became disillusioned with God and Christianity. And by the time he actually wrote um, the story, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, that was made into a movie, which I remember watching growing up as a kid. Uh, by that time, uh, he wrote this story, at least in part, to picture what he thought was the true reality of things. Whereas Methodist Church said, there is a God, uh, he's good, and he's behind all that's going on in one way or another In the book, you've got Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the Cowardly Lion. And they go to see the wizard. And there's this big booming voice that comes to them and speaks to them. And Toto, the little dog, pulls away the curtain, unveils what's behind and unseen. And they find the little man from Nebraska, you know, pulling levers and speaking into a microphone. And the idea is that ultimately this little man from Nebraska, who's supposed to be the great and terrible Wizard of Oz, ends up telling them that the very things you desire are things that are already within you, and you just need to look inside yourself for what you need. The message being, there really is no God. Everything you need is in you. Man is his ultimate God and Savior. That's really the the message of the book. And so he, being disillusioned, began to think that there wasn't anyone behind the veil. Wasn't anyone good, certainly, behind the veil because of all the difficulties of life. You know, there's a scripture in Acts chapter 14 where Paul is stoned. 
dragged out of the city for dead, gets up, goes on, and continues preaching. Later on, he goes back to the very city in which he was stoned. And not very long afterwards, and I can imagine there were probably still scars on his face and bruises on his body. And he sits there and it says he told the disciples, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter heaven on earth. That's what he's talking about. The very thing that Revelation 21 and 22 is talking about. And so the cure for disillusionment is to realize that God never promised us a rose garden. God never said that life would be without sin and failure and hardship and suffering, but that he would work all things together for our good and the end would be greater than anything we suffered in the process. And so it's so important that we see Jesus most of all in all of this book. But secondly, it talks uh, in the book of Revelation about the kinds of things that Jesus, the lion lamb, is doing as he rules and reigns. And the first thing that it highlights is that he shepherds his church. You'll notice in Revelation 1, 2, and 3, it highlights the seven churches of Asia, which the book of Revelation was written to these churches. And it highlights the fact that this lion lamb, Jesus, is the good shepherd who faithfully and perfectly cares for his church. And so you could say that the book of Revelation is meant to picture the history of the church in one way, shape, or form. And that's why we see in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus in the middle of seven lampstands. And the lampstands are pictures of the seven churches of Asia. And he holds in his hand seven stars, which are the seven angels of the church. The picture that's being painted there is those who profess faith in Christ are not alone. And Jesus, the one who rules and reigns over everything, is in their midst, which means he's in our midst right now. He's watching over his people and he's watching over them for the glory of his name and for their good. It's interesting that we see, um, on the one hand, in uh, Revelation chapter 21, we see the fact that there's a discussion in, in chapter 6 about the, the one, 5 and 6, uh, verses 5 and 6, rather, of Revelation 21. There's a discussion of one on the throne, and he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, on the one hand, people understand that reference there as speaking of God. And yet later on in chapter 22, it's talking about Jesus. Why? Because God reigns through the God-man, Jesus. But he reigns especially for his people, for the good of his people. He's ruling and reigning over everything for their good. In verse 2, it talks about the holy city coming down out of heaven the New Jerusalem, made ready as a bride, which is an interesting image if you really think about it. It's a picture of a city in a wedding dress. It's a picture of the people of God. It's a picture of uh, the community of believers. A city is a community, but a bride is an individual. It's an individual who has intimacy 
with the bridegroom. So the picture is both a community of millions and millions and who knows, billions of people. But also each of them has an incredible intimacy with the bridegroom. It's a wonderful picture of uh, the point of the book of Revelation is that Jesus cares for his people as a group, but he also cares for them as individuals, and he loves them, and we can trust him. Um, It's interesting that um, when Molly was really young, and actually with all our kids, we um, had certain rules in terms of what they could or couldn't do. Um, And Molly one day was talking about, uh, talking with her friends, and was, I think, passing out gum but she was making very sure that all of them were five because you can't have gum until you're five that's just a that's a life rule that everybody knows that god has said thou shalt not have gum before five and so the rule was in our house you can't have gum before five and molly was applying that beyond that and so why did we do that well there are a number of reasons why we did that uh one of the good things about it is to teach the virtue of waiting And one of the things the Bible says is that waiting is an incredibly important part of the Christian life. Wait on the Lord. Be strong and courageous. You know you have to be courageous to wait, to wait well. And so when you look at the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, in every single letter, uh, the Lord Jesus closes those letters by talking about those who overcome those who overcome, those who wait well and don't throw up their hands and turn their back on God, those who wait well and don't turn away from Christ, those who wait well and continue trusting and loving even when things are really hard. And so it says in Revelation 2, 7, uh, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. It goes on to say, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. He who overcomes, to him I will give authority over the nations. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Then finally in the last letter, he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. What throne is that? That's the throne of the universe. He who overcomes is every believer who Trust Christ to the end. And so overcoming is about waiting well. That no matter what happens, no no matter what mysterious things God does that we can't understand, we're going to still trust that he is loving us, he is keeping his promises, he is fulfilling his good purposes, and we will not walk away. Um, John Piper talks about the importance of patience and He says, impatience is a form of unbelief. You can apply this in a lot of different ways. I'm applying it to especially the issue of overcoming. It's what we begin to feel when we start to doubt the wisdom of God's timing or the goodness of God's guidance. It springs up in our hearts when our plan is interrupted or shattered. It may be prompted by a long wait in a checkout line or a sudden blow that knocks out half our dreams. The opposite of impatience is not not a glib denial of loss. It's a deepening, ripening, peaceful willingness to wait for God in the unplanned place of obedience and to walk with God at the unplanned pace 
of obedience, to wait in his place and go at his pace. And that's what the book of Revelation is meant to encourage believers to do, is to stay true to Christ no matter what the pregnancy looks like, no matter how hard it is. Heaven is on its way. Heaven on earth is the promise of God through Jesus. So do not grow weary. That's a very, very important picture of how Jesus is ruling and reigning. The second very important picture of how Jesus is ruling and reigning is actually in light of the seven seals, which is another major portion of the book. The seven, I call it birth pang seals because I... I see them as the kinds of things we should expect in history. On the one hand, Revelation is saying this is the history of the church and how Jesus is going to rule over the church. Secondly, it talks about this is world history and how the lion lamb is going to rule over world history. He will be a good ruler who will faithfully and perfectly oversee the consequences of the rebellion of sinners and the persecution of his people. And so that's why you see in the book of Revelation it talking about the lamb opening the seven seals. In verse 1 of the chapter that we just read, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. Some people are concerned that maybe heaven won't have any water in it. Uh, but the picture there is a picture of the first heaven and earth which was filled with sin, fallen creatures and a creation that's bound by the consequences of sin. The sea was a picture for many people in that day and time of that which was unknown and foreboding and evil, the source of evil. And so it's talking about the fact at least that there's not going to be any of that in the heaven to come and the world that God has promised his People And so Jesus is ruling over this fallen first heaven and earth in the perfect way he needs to rule over it in order to bring about the new heaven and the new earth. And so it's really what's happening in history is kind of a picture of the pregnancy as it's playing out from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. Jesus rules over history, and it's a reign of providence and purpose and promises. It's a reign of perfect reason, you could say. Um, there are all kinds of questions that come up with regard to these kinds of things. Um, you know, are things going to get better or worse before Christ comes back? Um, is uh, the world going to become Christian before it gets back? And the Bible seems to indicate that... Um, God is going to save people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. There's no doubt about that in his sovereign grace. And yet, at the same time, there's going to be a challenge to the people of God throughout history that will be increasingly so as we get closer to the end of time. And so the challenge is to really interpret what's going on. Like Frank Baum uh, interpreted history in such a way that... Um, Maybe there's no God, or if there is a God, he can't be kind. But Charles Spurgeon said, I, the preacher of this hour, beg to bear my witness that the worst days I've ever had have turned out to be my best days. 
And when God has seemed most cruel to me, he has then been most kind. If there is anything in this world for which I would bless him more than for anything else, it is for pain and affliction. I am sure that in these things the richest, tenderest love has been manifested to me. Our father's wagons rumble most heavily when they are bringing us the richest freight of the bullion of his grace. Love letters from heaven are often sent in black-edged envelopes. The cloud that is black with horror is big with mercy. Fear not the storm, it brings healing in its wings. And when Jesus is with you in the vessel, the tempest, or tempest only hastens the ship to its desired haven. Many people look at history and see it as a cruel history. You look through the eyes of the book of Revelation and the Bible and you see it as a kind history. A kind history. Just like Joseph said to his brothers who sold him into slavery, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. We look at history and say, this is just meant for evil. And in terms of fallen man, yes, that is the case. But in terms of God, he means everything for good. If we go on to the fourth slide in the um, slideshow that we see in Revelation, we see seven trumpets. You've got seven churches, seven seals, and then you have seven trumpets. I call them the fig tree trumpets because Jesus said that the way I understand what he's saying is that in the last generation before Christ comes back, there are going to be really profound things that happen. They're like trumpets blowing a warning that we are getting close to the return of Christ. There will be clear events that announce to God's people that the return of Christ is near and we're in the final generation. And that's why it talks about in Revelation 8 that the Lamb breaks the seventh seal and there's silence in heaven. Which means there's typically not silence in heaven. It's a lot of joy, a lot of celebration going on in heaven. But there was silence because the seven trumpets were about to sound and announce that the end is coming and the final judgment is almost there. In our passage in Revelation um, 21, in verse 4, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. The trumpets are a warning about the consequences of sin a reminder of the consequences of sin because God's intent is one day to remove the consequences of sin for all those who will trust Jesus. Um, the, the alarms that we find in these bowl, or excuse me, in these trumpets are intended indeed to alarm us not out of our wits but into them. Um, there's a quote by Richard Siebes who was another Puritan who said, we see that our Savior multiplies woe upon woe when he has to deal with hard-hearted hypocrites. For hypocrites need stronger conviction than gross sinners because their will is bad, and therefore usually their conversion is violent. A hard knot must have an answerable wedge, else in a cruel pity we betray their souls. A sharp reproof sometimes is a precious pearl and a sweet balm. So what is he saying there? He mentions a cruel pity. You know, in Proverbs, it talks about um, if you don't discipline your children, you don't love them. And yet, if we, 
if as a parent we argue, well, I don't want to upset my child and I don't want to hurt my child. Uh, Richard Sieb says that's a cruel pity. It may be pity, but it's a cruel pity. And he says God never, never is one to give in to cruel pity. Not that he's not one to pity us or to have mercy on us. It's that his mercy oftentimes means that he has to deal with us harshly. It's like we have to deal with our children harshly, not not with a hard heart, but with a tender heart, but with certain discipline. And so the seven trumpets that picture God's increasing judgment on the world is actually not a cruel thing. It's actually a kind thing that he would warn people that there is a judgment coming that they might be saved, that they might embrace the lion lamb that he's provided for sinners. Well, this only increases at the end in terms of the seven uh, bowls, which I call the seven day of the Lord bowls. The Bible talks about the day of the Lord, which is a, a reference to when Christ will return and when there will be a final warning and then final judgment on the world. The Lord Jesus will be revealed and we, he will come to publicly rescue his people and to execute divine judgment. And so the Revelation, the book of Revelation pictures the last temporal judgments and a call to repentance and the return of Christ. We see that in Revelation 19 when it says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. The whole idea of ju- judgment speaks to the fact that the second coming of Christ is going to be very much about justice, bringing justice. And yet, it will be to rescue those who've embraced the mercy that's offered in the gospel. That's why in verse 7 it says, He who overcomes will inherit these things. So that he comes to rescue the overcomers. Overcoming doesn't mean I've triumphed. It means I've trusted in the one who's triumphed. That's the issue. That's the whole issue of faith is that it's not about me achieving. It's about me embracing what he's, in, he's achieved on the part of sinners. I've mentioned before just recently uh, the poet uh, William Ernest Henley and his poem Invectus. And uh, Paul came up to me afterwards and mentioned the fact that Timothy Veigh, who executed the Oklahoma City bombing and was then executed for it, right before he was executed, actually made reference to this poem. And the poem, if you remember, says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud, Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate nor how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And yet, in his own life, uh, he could, could have seen easily that that wasn't true. He had tuberculosis, he had his leg amputated, and he had no control over that. 
That wasn't something he chose. He wasn't the captain of his health. And so it was a delusion. It was an illusion to think that he was truly the master of his fate and the captain of his soul. And so he talked about an unconquerable soul and his head being unbowed. He was unafraid. And yet the fruit of that is simply being unforgiven. Which is the greatest tragedy of all when you have a Savior who says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so... It's interesting as you read about the bowls, the final judgment of God, temporal judgments before the ultimate judgment, um, it highlights the fact it says twice in Revelation 16 that though people were going through this, they did not repent, which means it was a final call to repentance, but their heads were unbowed and they were unafraid of the God they needed to be afraid of. And they were unwilling to be forgiven by the Savior who had been provided. Well, the sixth slide in the slideshow that we see in the book of Revelation is the one we actually looked at last week briefly, which is the great white throne, which I would call the merciful and just great white throne. Excuse me. There's a reason why I say that, because in chapter 20, uh, verse 11 through Verse 12, it talks about the great white throne, the fact that the the dead, the great, and the small stand before the great white throne. Books are opened, and another book is opened, which is the book of life. And that the dead are judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. The according to their deeds is a reference to justice. There would It will be a just judgment. It will be according to what people have actually done and whatever is the just consequence of that. But the reference to the book of life is a reference to those who've received mercy. And later on, it's referred to as the book of the Lamb, the Lamb's book of life, all those who've embraced the mercy that is offered to us in Jesus. It's interesting when you think about both justice and mercy, uh, we wrestle with, with that. And there's a story that I've told before that I think is sort of a, a kind of um, traditional Jewish story, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, in which there's this discussion between Moses and God. And as the story is told, <clears throat> Moses is sitting by a well, and he sees three travelers in the process of sitting by this well. The first traveler comes to the well, he stops to get something to drink, and he unknowingly drops his money bag and he moves on the second traveler comes to the well to get some water too he finds the money bag and he takes it and he walks off third traveler comes gets some water goes to sleep by the well the first traveler comes back looking for his money finds that man they get into an argument the first man kills the third man over the argument over the money And Moses says this in light of that, in watching that play out. He says, um, let me get to the being of this. Moses said to God, you see, therefore men do not believe you. There's too much evil and injustice in the world. Why should the first man have lost his purse and then become a murderer? 
Why should the second have gotten a purse full of gold without having worked for it? The third was completely innocent. Why was he slain? Then God answers Moses' questions. He says, for once and only once, I will give you an explanation. I cannot do it at every step. The first man was a thief's son. The purse contained money stolen by his father from the father of the second man, who finding the purse only found what was due him. The third was a murderer whose crime had never been revealed and who received from the first the punishment he deserved. In the future, believe that there is sense and righteousness in what transpires, even when you do not understand. I use that simply to illustrate the fact that there are many people that look at Revelation 20 and the final judgment and wonder whether or not that's really just. Especially when we talk about things like hell. That story is meant to say that if we understand what is really true about us as sinners and about God as holy and about everything that transpires, we will not complain at the white, great white throne judgment that God is unjust. The second part of this, though, is the idea of mercy, which is pictured by the book of life. Uh, There's a quote from Thomas Watson that I really love in light of this because he says, God is more inclined to mercy than wrath, than bringing about justice. Mercy is his darling attribute, which he most delights in. Mercy pleases him. Acts of severity are rather forced from God. He does not afflict willingly. He's quoting scripture as he says these things. He says, the bee naturally gives honey. It stings only when it is provoked. Just so, God does not punish until he can bear no longer. Mercy is God's right hand that he is most used to. Inflicting punishment is called his strange work. He is not used to it. Then finally, he says, in quoting the scriptures, he is slow to anger, but ready to forgive. And so we misunderstand the scriptures if we think that God is a God that just can't wait to judge people and to give them a just punishment for their sin. Ezekiel says, God says, that he would rather be merciful than to see unbelievers die and receive what they justly deserve. Some people have wondered about some of the things that the Bible says about few being saved and that kind of thing. And I think they link it sometimes to the idea that God really loves to sow justice and isn't really as merciful as we might think he is, which is our temptation. But it tells us in Revelation 7, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Talking about the multitude in heaven that could not be counted. If you remember, God promised Abraham that he would greatly multiply his seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. 
that he would have as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. The implication is it'll, it'll be just as hard to count the saved in heaven as it would be to go down to the beach at Huntington and count the sands in some real sense. Charles Spurgeon said, Some people think that heaven will be a very small place where there will be a very few people who went to their chapel or their church. I confess I have no wish for a very small heaven and love to read in the scriptures that there are many mansions in my father's house. How often do I hear people say, Ah, straight is the gate and narrow is the way and few there be that find it. There will be very few in heaven. There will be most lost. My friend, I differ from you. Do you think that Christ will let the devil beat him? That he will let the devil have more in hell than there will be in heaven? No, it is impossible. For then Satan would laugh at Christ. There will be more in heaven than there are among the lost. God says that there will be a number that no man can number who will be saved. But he never says that there will be a number that no man can number that will be lost. There will be a host beyond all count who get into heaven, not by their good works, but by the finished work of Jesus and him alone. The last picture that we have is a picture of a holy and happy heaven on earth. And obviously we'll go through chapters 21 and 22 and see an elaboration on what this really means. But I want to focus as we close on verses 3 through 5 where it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he goes on to say, I am making all things new. And so what is the picture that we have of heaven on earth? We have a picture of God with us. God manifesting all his glory in our presence and us being fully and forever happy in his presence. That's the picture of heaven on earth. Hell is pictured as the absence of God and the absence of good. Heaven is pictured as the presence of God and the presence of everything good. The Bible says that there are ways in which we're going to recognize things. I mean, the glorified body that we're going to have is going to be, I believe, similar to what we have now, that we'll be able to recognize Alex there and Claudia and, and the rest of us will be able to recognize people uh, because our glorified bodies will reflect some similarities. And yet there will be things about our glorified bodies and the renewed new heaven and earth that are much greater than we can even fully imagine. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 2, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And as I've mentioned before, C.S. Lewis tries to kind of encapsulate that idea of this glorious uh, future that God has promised his people that we can't fully imagine at the end of the last battle, the last book of the Narnia series, when he says, And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, 
this the end of all the stories and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And so C.S. Lewis is trying just to picture what the end of the book, our book, is really saying, that there, there are glories and, and joys and uh, experiences that we can't even fully imagine at this point. Things that God has prepared for all those who have entrusted themselves to the right ruler. I want to close with this. Um, there's a TV show that I remember watching with my family when we were growing up uh, called To Tell the Truth. And To Tell the Truth was a game show in of sorts in, in which uh, there was this panel that would evaluate, uh, I think, three different people that would come on and they would all claim to be a certain person. One of them truly was that person. The other two weren't. The one who was the real person they were talking about uh, would have to always tell the truth no matter what the question was. The other two were free to lie. And at the end, they would say, would the real so-and-so stand up? And you'd find out whether or not the panel picked the right person as the true person. All of us are in that kind of situation. All of us are trying to evaluate who's the real ruler of the universe. Who's the real savior of the universe? Is it that person? Is it that person? Is it that person in history or this person in my life? Or is it me? Like Frank Baum maybe thought. Or um, Timothy McVeigh or others. Who is the real king and savior, lion and lamb that we're to entrust our lives to? You might wonder why I have that picture up there. That picture is actually a picture that was taken quite a while ago, back in 1957, by an engineer who... Uh, photographed a fleeting moment in his lab where he dropped a single drop of milk. And he took the picture as it hit the table. And he called the picture the milk drop coronet. Coronet is a small crown. And the picture, and we've been talking about pictures today, this picture was meant to capture a moment invisible to the naked eye. Revelation is a picture and a series of pictures to show us what is invisible to our naked eye. To show us Jesus, the history of the church, the history of the world, um, what's going to happen when we get close to the end, what God's going to do right at the end, and what's going to happen when it's all said and done. And ultimately, all of history is pointing to the king. It's pointing to a coronet or a crown. It's pointing to King Jesus. And it's asking the question, what will you do with Jesus? Who is your king? Um, Spurgeon, um, in his last sermon before he died, last recorded sermon said, 
Depend upon it. You will either serve Satan or Christ, either self or the Savior. You will find sin, self, Satan, and the world to be hard masters. But if you wear the livery of Christ, you will find him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest unto your souls. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind, and tender, yea, lavish and superabundant in love, you always find it in him. These 40 years and more have I served him. I have had nothing but love from him. His service is life, peace, joy. Oh, that you would enter at once upon that joy. God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus even this day. Amen. Spurgeon could say, our choice is either Satan or Christ ultimately. And that's what the book of Revelation pictures for us. It pictures that cosmic conflict between God, Christ, and Satan. And it encourages us to believe that if we embrace Jesus, we will experience nothing but love from him, no matter how hard it might be, no matter what the pregnancy might look like. And in the end, we will enjoy heaven on earth, full and lasting joy forever in his presence. And we will be satisfied and we will worship him forever. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for, in a sense, a slideshow that you've given us in the book of Revelation, pictures of your grand purposes as you fulfill your great and precious promises to us as your people. We are prone to wonder about the one behind the curtain. We are prone to walk away And think that maybe we can't trust you because of all the difficulties in life and all the terrible things that have happened in history. And yet, Father, we pray for every single person here this morning. And even those who are going to see this video one way or another, we pray that, that they would indeed see Jesus for who he truly is. An able and willing Savior for sinners and the King of kings and the Lord of lords who reigns righteously, perfectly, justly, lovingly, and that indeed there is no better friend, there is no greater Savior, there, there is no wonderful Lord, more wonderful Lord, no better way to invest in our own happiness and the happiness of those around us than to give our lives to Jesus and to trust him and to wait Well, for heaven on earth one day, we pray that everyone here would do just that and that their faith would be strengthened, whatever their trials might be today and tomorrow. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.